Welcome back to the Global News Update. This is the show bringing you cultural commentary from a biblical perspective. It's been a while since we last did an actual episode of the Global Update and so much has been happening in the world. 2020 has been quite a year so far. We will go back and start right at the beginning. I believe the last episode we did of the Global News Update was actually at the beginning of the Covid crisis and we will jump back into that issue now. But before we get into that, let's start in the UK and let's just honour the passing of a legend. Let's play clip one. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. That, of course, is the voice of Sean Connery, most famously known for his uh, portrayal of James Bond. The actor, the Scottish actor, he passed away in his sleep on October the 31st at the age of 90. For many, he'll always be remembered as James Bond. To another generation, maybe, he'll be remembered for being the dad of Indiana Jones in the famous movie with Harrison Ford, The Last Crusade. Daniel Craig, the current James Bond, said this. He said, Sir Sean was one of the true greats of cinema. Sir Sean Connery will be remembered as Bond and so much more. He defined an era and a style. The wit and charm he portrayed on screen could be measured in megawatts. He helped create the modern blockbuster. And for many, his death, I believe, really does indicate the passing of an era uh, in movies as well as just generally in our culture. Now let's stay in the UK and have a look at COVID-19. This has been such an unusual time. We had a national lockdown in earlier in the year in March and April. Since then, the country has been opened up. Businesses have been running a furlough scheme where employees have been being subsidised by the government and are not working. This has now um, been extended for another month, but it was due to end this week. Many restrictions still remain in place for certain businesses. There's been a a mask mandate brought in at a late stage. This has been a very controversial policy. The the rule of six had been applied across the UK, which you cannot mix with more than six people. The UK had then been divided up into different tiers of lockdown, all of which with their own restrictions. Quite frankly, it's been very confusing, and this has led to uh, increased frustration in the population. Now, to help the confusion, I've actually found an official official government policy clip. So let's play clip two. Good evening. The government has published a detailed plan for what would happen in the event of a widespread outbreak of coronavirus. We follow the four-stage strategy. What's that? In stage one, we say nothing is going to happen. Stage two, we say something may be going to happen, but we should do nothing about it. Stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. (laughs) Stage four, we say maybe there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. Now, of course, that is a meme that someone has put together on the internet. That is actually the 80s sitcom Yes Minister. But once again, comedy does seem to blend into reality these days. Now, as of Thursday, the 5th of November, the UK will be going back into a full national lockdown. Here is Prime Minister Boris Johnson giving the order. Let's play clip three. Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. You may only leave home for specific reasons, including for education, 
for work, let's say if you cannot work from home, for exercise and recreation outdoors with your household or on your own uh, with one person from another household, uh, for medical reasons, appointments, uh, and to escape injury or, or harm, to shop for food and essentials, and to provide care for vulnerable people or as a volunteer. I'm afraid non-essential shops, leisure and entertainment venues will all be closed, though click and collect services can continue and essential shops will remain open so there's no need to stock up. Now, in reality, during this press conference, they, they showed lots of graphs and statistics. And it does seem that the government policy is very reliant on the selective interpretation of statistical modelling. So these are not real cases. These are often just modelling. There is no uh, consensus scientifically for the extreme measures put in place. And many are now wondering whether the solution is actually worse than the problem. And this is a real question that we need to ask. The feeling of the British public was summed up uh, beautifully in a street interview that has subsequently gone viral. Let's play clip four. Uh, I think it's all ridiculous. We should never have been in lockdown. All the people who are vulnerable should have been helped and kept on safe. And all the rest of us, I'm 83, I don't give a sod. I look at it this way. I've not got all that many years left of me and I'm not going to be fastened in a house when the government have got it all wrong. We need... How can we get the country on its feet, money-wise? Where's all the money? By the end of this year, there's going to be millions of people unemployed, and you know who's going to pay for it? All the young ones. Not me, because I'm going to be dead. Now, that was 83-year-old Maureen from Barnsley. And it's obviously, it's comical, but it represents a serious issue underlying it all. You see, part of the problem has been this selective use of statistics and data modelling. Much of the data and the models that the government used in the early lockdown of March and April have actually proven to be inaccurate. And frustratingly, there is a tendency to ignore any advice from equally qualified medical experts that come to a different conclusion. It's the lack of balance that I believe is frustrating people. During this year, throughout this pandemic, the government and their advisers have made constant predictions, projections and illustrations regarding the behaviour of COVID-19. Their figures are never revisited as the COVID narrative unfolds, which means we are not given an idea of the error margin with these figures. All we have to do is take a look back at the figures issued to see the track record and <laughs> eventually... Against the facts that we now have, the track record of the modelling is abysmal. Let me give you a few uh, examples of how wrong these statistics and models have been throughout this period. The first one, overestimating or overstating the number of people who are going to die. Now this starts with the now infamous Imperial College London Report 9 that originally modelled 500,000 deaths if no action was taken at all and 250,000 deaths if restrictions were not tightened. And this really set the train for the lockdown restrictions in motion that has been slowly going ever since. And of course those death figures are wrong. The leaked SAGE paper, SAGE is the scientific advisory group for the government, a print paper written by SAGE members to support a two-week circuit breaker lockdown like they've got in Wales, was leaked to the press and the report was quite striking. Let me quote for you from this report by SAGE. They say, quote, they're experts, with no social distancing measures in place from now until January, 
the virus could potentially spiral out of control and kill 217,000 people, hospitalise 316,000 and infect 20.7 million. But with a strict two-week lockdown, the number of deaths could be reduced by 100,000, admissions by 139,000 and infections by 6 million. Now, understandably, throwing around those sorts of numbers, this made headlines. But when the actual lead author of the paper was interviewed on the BBC, he actually said that he wished he hadn't put these numbers in the study because it was an extreme scenario only included for illustration. And what that basically means is these are hypothetical numbers using the worst case scenarios and people were seeing these massive figures and panicking. And panic does seem to be what is really driving much of the dialogue and the narrative with this whole issue as we go forth. But that was another issue that they got wrong. Another issue, the miscategorization of COVID deaths. And this is a really serious one. Under the original system, someone who was run over by a bus would be counted as a COVID death if he or she had tested positive for COVID but later recovered. So this means that if they, they got COVID, had mild effects or they were asymptomatic and they were tested, even if like two weeks later they got run over by a bus, this was being recorded as a COVID death. Now, when this anomaly was pointed out by the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, it turned out even the health secretary was unaware what the COVID death data referred to. And this, again, just illustrates how poor quality data from Public Health England has been misleading the government itself. Another area, exaggerating COVID's impact on hospitals. A leaked NHS report written in April warned that the UK would need 25,000 hospital beds to treat COVID patients well into July. However, on the 24th of July, the daily count of confirmed COVID-19 patients in hospital was only 928 and 1,356 across the whole of the UK, or just 5% of the prediction. So they got that one wildly wrong. And I, I could go through many more examples like this. Now, you see, the issue is rather than be cautious in the use of such data, which would have been advisable, the government's approach has been to publish all the worst case scenarios. And these assumptions have so far largely proven to be unreasonable and all too often just flat out incorrect. Which is why it seems just so crazy that the UK is about to embrace a second national lockdown, which again will just decimate people's livelihoods, those businesses that are still struggling to get back on their feet. Personally, I've had so many emails in my inbox from small businesses and people that I've signed up with and done business with before who are just writing heartfelt messages to their customers. We're so sorry. It's, it's you know, we're, we're going to have to close again. Our hearts are broken because they know the effect this is going to have. It's just tragic to watch. And the way this has progressed, unfortunately, in the grander narrative, that anyone who would dare to question the authority of SAGE or the government's figures are simply being ridiculed as COVIDiots. That's a phrase, a hashtag phrase that has been uh, trending, COVIDiots, for, for those who would sort of be anti-lockdown, as they say. You're being lumped in with any number of conspiracy theorists. And really, we know that this is just a way to shut down constructive dialogue and debate. And this is a very dangerous precedent. There is a new campaign that has just been released in the UK called Time for Recovery, and it offers some very reasonable principles. Let me just read some of the material from their campaign website. They say the art of government is in large part about balance. 
The interests of people coming towards the end of their lives must be balanced against the needs of those with their whole lives in front of them. The freedom of all must be balanced against the prevention of irresponsible actions. The need to keep the nation healthy must be balanced against the need to keep it fed, active and productive. Without the other three, the first is unachievable. Get the balance wrong in key areas and our country may swiftly become impoverished, divided and authoritarian. And sadly, this is a real threat. Over COVID-19, the UK government has got the balance badly wrong. For example, it has prioritised the treatment of COVID over all other conditions, including the most lethal killers that we face today, cancer, dementia, heart disease, and for those of us under 40, suicide. We know for certain that the failure to treat these mass killers will produce thousands of excess deaths as medical experts like Professor Carl Hennigan of the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine have warned. Meanwhile, the example of Sweden suggests that draconian action may have little impact on the final toll from Covid. However, even to debate questions like this is now stigmatised by many in government and media as irresponsible. And instead, the debate in the UK is driven by a vicious cycle of interactions between broadcasters, government and public opinion. These have pushed the country towards ever more repressive measures. We have a divided population split between those who have taken an intelligent interest in the facts and a panicking majority who have been simply terrified by the broadcast media. We need more people to think rationally if we want the government to do the same. Until then, it will continue implementing restrictions no matter what the damage as fluctuating opinion polls dictate. The broadcast media has a lust for creating panic, which makes the news feel important and exciting. And while the reality is slowly dawning, panic is still what most people feel. This result is a cycle of destructive behaviour which threatens our lives, our futures and our freedom. It's time for the UK to return to its senses. Recovery is campaigning for an approach to COVID that acknowledges the risk but weighs action against the consequences. And that's the issue there because there are people who are denying the virus and these people are are not accurate. We're not denying the great risk from this virus but we just believe that the actions must be weighed against the consequences. One of the issues that has arisen for this from church leaders obviously in, in the national lockdown is that the churches are again being closed and this is a very controversial issue. Many many pastors have been struggling to keep their flocks together, to minister to people during this difficult time when you can't fellowship and pray for one another in the same way, even having masks during congregational time. Many of the church leaders who previously agreed to the lockdown back in March are now starting to realise or, or starting to come to the uh, conclusion that If we allow congregational worship and the meeting of the church to be classed as a non-essential, are we betraying the primary purpose of the church, which is, you know, devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship of one another, breaking of bread and all these things that happen in our communal times? It's a question we need to seriously consider. In Wales, that are currently going through a a two-week circuit breaker lockdown, A church decided to defy these ban orders and they held a service which was then broken up by the police. It's a very difficult video to watch, especially for the police, actually, when you see see them turn up and realise that they're actually having to break up a a small church service. It, It was done very well. There was no violence, nothing like that. But the pastor in a report from the Daily Mail said this. We have been running COVID compliant church services and care deeply about everybody's well-being. But the government does not understand how important spiritual well-being is to people's lives. That is what the church does. 
It provides for people's material, emotional and spiritual needs in time of personal and collective crisis. And that, that is that's a good statement there. That is what the church does. And it, it does seem that the government doesn't really understand this. Elsewhere in the UK, the Catholic Bishops Conference uh, for England and Wales, the Anglo-Catholics, they are also putting up a statement that seems to say they're not going to abide by this. In their statement, they say this. We have not yet seen any evidence whatsoever that would make the banning of communal worship with all its human costs a productive part of combating the virus. We ask the government to produce this evidence that justifies the cessation of acts of public worship. To counter the virus, we will, as a society, need to make sustained sacrifices for months to come. And in requiring this sacrifice, the government has a profound responsibility to show why it has, has taken particular decisions. Not doing so risks eroding the unity we need as we enter a most difficult period for our country. Now, you may agree or not agree with this. This is something that the church leaders need to think about, to pray hard about, and we need to have a good constructive dialogue about. You see, one of the dangers is that with precedent now set for governments to be able to stop church life in a self-declared time of crisis, it will be much easier for them to ever do that again at that po at a point in the future, whatever that may be. I believe we don't want to encourage anyone to break the law or to violate their consciences in these issues. At the very least, we should make sure that MPs are arriving to their desks Monday morning to thousands of emails from their constituents telling them that the freedom of worship and what happens in a church service how it is not a non-essential. It's vital to the life of the thousands upon thousands of Christians in this nation. Well, that's enough about COVID. Let's now head over to the Middle East. On September the 15th, on the south lawn of the White House, the first Arab-Israeli peace treaty in more than a quarter of a century was signed. And this is truly a historic event. This was not just a peace treaty between Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. It was also a treaty between Israel and the Kingdom of Bahrain. There's many, going to be many knock-on effects from this. Banking, cybersecurity, economic, economic advance, the diamond trade. All these things are set to see benefits of this new cooperation as business leaders from both nations express huge optimism about the alliance and this, the peace that this could bring to the Middle East. An Etihad airline flight landed at Ben Gurion Airport at 7am Monday morning, last Monday, making history. This was the first commercial flight from Abu Dhabi to Tel Aviv. Before this, previously, obviously, they did not share airspace and they wouldn't, you never would have seen this. The pilot said a few words to mark this historic occasion. If someone asked me a few months ago, he said, that I would be here today making this speech in Tel Aviv, I would say that's impossible. But because we have brave men who believe in peace, because of them they worked together and made peace, I hope the whole region one day would be in peace and that people will live together in peace and harmony. It was fascinating to watch, uh, and this really signifies a new alignment of nations in the Middle East. Uh, as Trump and his team are confident, many more nations will follow the example of the UAE. And he has been proven right by that already. On October the 23rd, the North African country of Sudan signed a normalisation agreement. And this is very interesting, because unlike the wealthy sort of UAE members... Uh, Sudan really has no economic advantage. It's not going to be a, a new tourist hotspot for travel between the two peoples. These peace deals, although they offer great economic benefit, 
they're about more than money. And what we are watching in real time is a new regional order taking shape in the Middle East. And it is drawing a line in the sand between those who stand against Iran and those who stand with Iran. This is the issue that's actually uh, motivating much of what we're seeing in the Middle East right now. The last few decades of Sudan's history have been wrought with war, military coups, dictatorships, genocide and poverty. Sudan was designated a, a state sponsor of terror by the USA because it, it hosted al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and, and many other terrorists. But the, that status has now been revoked in order so that this could go ahead. The removal of sanctions will give the economy a chance to grow. And just two days after the, the announcement of the normalization agreement, Israel made the first move and they are announcing a shipment of over five million pounds worth of wheat being shipped to Sudan. And the question that is interesting for us is what does this mean for the broader region? The Palestinian issue, which is the one that has so dominated our, our society and our negotiations and the way we have uh, sort of tried to make peace in the Middle East, that seems to be overshadowed by the Iranian issue. And countries are realigning for and against Iran. In this case, Israel easily shares company with the UAE. Uh, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, Sudan, Saudi Arabia and Morocco. And this is, of course, backed by the Americans. Meanwhile, those who would side with Iran seem to be Syria and Lebanon, Yemen, uh, Qatar, Gaza, Turkey, Russia and China being three large world players that are very fascinating to watch at this time. All of this realignment has students of Bible prophecy alert and watching. And so we should be. Now, we do not want to fall into the trap of any sensational exegesis of current events, but we do not really uh, want to miss what is happening right now. We do not want definitely to negatively assess an opportunity for improved relations between Israel and her neighbours, just on a sort of geopolitical stance. We do want to see improved relations. Yet at the same time, we know that the Bible does seem very clear that at a certain time, when Israel is feeling secure with her own borders, she will be attacked by surrounding nations. This is what Ezekiel 38 and 39 seem to suggest. So at this time, we need to continue to pray for the region. We need to rejoice with them at this time, but also have our eyes on what is happening in the larger uh, Middle East at this time. And we need to understand the times according to Scripture. Let's stay in the Middle East now and let's change uh, pace a little bit and head over to Israel for an exciting archaeological discovery. Capitals from the first temple era palatial structure have been found in Jerusalem. This was announced on the 3rd of September uh, in the Times of Israel. The capitals, now a capital is a um, sort of a decorated column head like you would see uh, holding up walls and buildings. They found three of these that exhibit a design that is really known from the kingdom of Judah. So this is going back to the time when the kingdoms were, were split, the north and south and the kingdom of Judah. They are connected to the Davidic dynasty, that's the, the, the dynasty of King David, because such designs from the period of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have only been found within the areas they ruled. And the style on these pillars uh, is the royal style and official that has been known to be on the buildings and kingdoms of Israel and Judea during the first temple period. And it was likely built, the, the ones from that they found, was likely built after the siege of the Assyrians and before the destruction of the Babylonians. Archaeologists believe it is evidence that the ruling caste in Jerusalem felt confident enough to build these villas and royal estates actually outside the city walls. 
The location of the site seems to indicate an exit from the walls of Jerusalem, the archaeologist said. And this showed them that people felt secure in their surroundings after the Assyrian siege of the city had failed. Do you remember that story when Sennacherib came up against Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah and he taunted him from the walls and Isaiah came to give counsel to Hezekiah and they they eventually prayed to the Lord and the Lord sent that angel and destroyed the armies of Assyria. This is the sort of time period we're talking about. And the fact that then they were so, the Assyrian army was so destroyed that they went home the people of Judah actually felt confident enough to start building outside of their walls. So it's a good uh, corroboration of that biblical story. Again, just another uh, remarkable and fascinating historical evidence for the reliability of the Bible. Let's now head over to France for some updates on the ongoing situation there. Let's play clip five. President Emmanuel Macron has denounced a knife attack that killed three people in a church in Nice as Islamist terrorism. Speaking from the scene, he warned that France was under attack for its values. Have a listen. Once again, our country has been struck by an Islamist terrorist attack. Once again this morning, three of our fellow citizens were killed in Nice at the Notre Dame Basilica here. And clearly, the whole of France is attacked. In the past two weeks, France has seen three apparent Islamic terror attacks in the wake of the trial of the accomplices of the 2015 Charlie Hedbo massacres. If you remember this case, uh, in 2015, 14 uh, Islamist extremists, they murdered 17 people in a, in a killing spree that started at the Paris office of Charlie Hedbo, which is a satirical magazine in France, and they had published some pictures of cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, the trial of some accomplices has been happening at the moment in France, and this, they believe, is what has spurred on these attacks. So let's start, give you a timeline. On October the 16th, in broad daylight, a French school teacher, Samuel Paty, he was 47 years old, he was beheaded on a suburban street for teaching his students a required lesson about free speech. And then on October the 29th, Three people were stabbed to death inside a church in Nice by a 21-year-old Tunisian who had just recently arrived in France. One of these women was a 60-year-old woman who was virtually beheaded. And then on October the 31st, a 52-year-old Orthodox priest was shot point-blank as he was closing his church in Lyon. He is currently, uh, believe, in a life-threatening situation in hospital. Now, to understand this, what we are seeing here was really a clash of worldviews. The French secular enlightenment values and the values of immigrating Muslims who are more in line with, with a form of Islam that goes back to the 8th century mindset during the early expansionist years of Islam are clashing. Uh, Rahil Raza, he is a, a Muslim spokesperson for the Clarion Project and president of Muslims Facing Tomorrow. He writes this. This is the crux of the problem. But due to political correctness, neither Muslim nor non-Muslim leaders discussed the issue. In fact, the news of the Paris beheading did not get front page coverage in many mainstream media outlets. France is a country that runs on the motto, liberty, equality and fraternity. In defiance of the ideology that resulted in Patti's murder, 
Two town halls in the uh, region of Montpellier and Toulouse projected the Charlie Hedbo cartoons on the walls of a local government building. Once again, the Islamists were furious, but they must accept that France is not an Islamic country and prides itself on secularism and its resultant value of freedom of expression. He goes on, While some may disagree with this form of protest, these French cities have the right to do whatever they like. Moreover, this act shows us that Patty's beheading was not just an attack on an individual. It was an attack on the values of freedom, enlightenment, dissent and critical thinking which we hold dear and near to us in the West. Now, this incident does highlight the fallacious thinking by many governments in their approach to multiculturalism in the West. And even in the UK, we had uh, demonstrations outside the French embassy by those who were shouting for people to respect Islam. Let me play you clip six. Now, if we were to sort of probe a little bit deeper into this analysis, I can understand why many people look on at this who, who don't have any sort of religious affiliations, true secularists, and they, and they just think, look at religion, it's just so evil. What? And they just do not understand what is happening here because you have to go back in history a bit. The cultural demise of the Judeo-Christian foundation in the West and in France too, starting from the French Revolution, true liberalism, which is based on Christian ethics and Christian worldview, which allowed this area where people can disagree about views, that is being lost. The, the Christian liberalism and, and Judeo-Christian foundations are actually the forebears of the values and freedoms that the French people elevate, but they are basing them on secularism, not Christianity, and they're making a mistake doing that, because what they are now discovering is that secularism cannot support these values. They've chopped off the root, and they're expecting to be able to still have the fruit, but this is not happening. Secularism has no inherent foundation to hold up these values. And what has happened is there has, this has created a power vacuum. And this is being filled by the ideology of Islam. But, uh, as that author I quoted earlier mentioned, the political correctness has stopped people from having critical analysis of this issue. And this is usually stopped by you know anyone who would question it, claims of racism, Islamophobia, these sorts of things. But what is happening in France and in many places across Europe is really a clash of worldviews. And again, this should serve as a wake-up call to many sleepy churches in the West. The freedoms we have must be defended. We must speak up for them. They were won at a high cost by previous generations. And I'm speaking in a much more broader sense than there than what is just happening in France. Let's finish up now by heading over to the States. I am actually recording this just a few days before the general election that will see the Republicans and Donald Trump go against Joe Biden and the Democrats. And it will bring to an end an extremely divided election campaign season. And I don't believe that will, you know, it'll carry on whoever gets elected. It'll be a, a, a tough time in American history. However, Given that the results are just days away, I'm going to stop any comment and analysis because it would be better to do that maybe in the aftermath of the election than try and predict things a few days before. So let's look at a few other things that are that are coming out of the states at this time. The need for expository preaching. This is an interesting one. As always, the church needs to be about the business of expositing the word of God. What did Jesus say in John 8, 31 to 32? 
Jesus, it says this, Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Wonderful scripture there. And with that in our minds, this clip from Kanye West being interviewed on the Joe Rogan podcast caught my attention. Let's play clip seven. The way he preaches is, is called expository. It's like one to one by the word. I, I like all different kind of preachers, but there's some type of preachers they... They get up, they have the Bible in their hand, then they close the Bible, and then they just talk for uh, two hours. And, it's, and, and, and some do have anointing, but the expository preachers go line for line. And for me, it's like I come from entertainment. I got so much sauce. I don't need no sauce on the word. I need the word to be solid food. And this has done the rounds on social media, and I think it's the way he phrases it, no sauce on the word. <laughs> it does seem today that we get a lot of sauce and a little word. And his statement there about solid food seems to be echoing the sentiment by the author of the book of Hebrews in 5.12. Let me quote that to you. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God, and you have come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. So that's a lesson for us there in the church. We need to make sure we are about the business of expositing the word of God. Now let's head over to our final issue of the, of the day here, the role of big tech in the world. It seems like the likes of Facebook and Twitter and Google have almost got a near monopoly on the information that people see and read, and thus they exert huge influence on the population. And there have been sort of rumblings now for a while that they have been promoting views that align with their own political opinions and, at worst, suppressing views that don't. Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee voted unanimously to subpoena the testimonies of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, after all 10 Democrats boycotted the panel's hearing to advance the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Republican members want the two CEOs, uh, Zuckerberg and Dorsey, to testify about their handling of a recent series of articles by the New York Post, which is America's fourth largest newspaper. And the articles concerned the former Vice President Joe Biden's son Hunter's business dealings. Senator Ted Cruz really unloaded on Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey during the Senate hearing, which happened just on Wednesday, slamming the actions that his platform, Twitter, has taken against conservative news. Yeah, here is a small clip from that interaction. Let's play clip eight. Twitter takes the view you can censor the New York Post, you can censor Politico, presumably you can censor the New York Times or any other media outlet. Mr. Dorsey, who the hell elected you and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear? And why do you persist in behaving as a Democratic super PAC, silencing views to the contrary of your political beliefs? Let, let's give uh, Mr. Dorsey. Uh, uh... Now, of course, if this is true, it would seem that suppressing uh, these viewpoints that you don't pol that are against your political persuasion is a gross violation of the neutrality that these uh, platforms are supposed to have. But it's also an act of election interference if that is what happened and it it does if we just sort of take this a few steps further down the line 
it offers us a glimpse maybe into an Orwellian f sort of future where we are completely controlled by the technology around us and we are almost made to be puppets in their play. They control what we read, what we see, and, and because of that, how we think. And we see this playing out in the world in minuscule today, but where does this end? And that is a question, again, we all need to, to face. And this leads us really to the final item I'd like to leave you with today. Usually I like to recommend a resource for you at the end, and I'm going to do that today. It's not going to be a biblical resource. I actually want to recommend a documentary called The Social Dilemma. And this is making a big noise on social media now, and that's why I think we should watch it. Now, of course, you won't agree with everything in it. It's not a Christian documentary, but it has caused many to reevaluate their social media usage. Let me play to you a small clip from the Netflix trailer. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked, is being measured. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded exactly what image you stop and look at, for how long you look at it. Oh yeah, seriously, for how long you look at it. They know when people are lonely, they know when people are depressed, they know when people are looking at photos of your ex-romantic partners, they know what you're doing late at night, they know the entire thing. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, or what kind of neuroses you have, what your personality type is. And of course, I think as Christians, we do need to make sure that we are stewarding our time wisely, that we are not controlled by these external forces because we, we are told to be controlled or filled, you might say, by the Holy Spirit. So anything, you know, we may need to assess these parts of our lives and the way we use social media. And this could have a huge benefit to our spiritual lives. Well, that is all from the Global News Update. I hope we will be back with you soon and I really hope you've enjoyed this show. Please subscribe to the podcast and we also have uh, it available on the YouTube channel. That will be the Theology and Apologetics YouTube channel. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that on Patreon. The details will be in the end credits. Thanks for listening. listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.